Good morning, Elevation. Here we are once again. For those of you who are just joining us for the first time, my name is Brandon. I'm the lead pastor at Elevation in Waterloo. Good to be here with everyone virtually once again. Uh, so a few weeks ago, uh, my 15-year-old son Jude asked me to download an app called the Nike Run Club. I've been going kind of running around our neighborhood and such for quite a long time, and Jude has joined in the habit uh, during this quarantine. He's been running a lot, actually a lot more than I have, to be honest. Um, but he said, you got to get this app. Uh, you take your phone with you basically when you run, and it measures how fast each kilometer is and how much of a hill you climb and stuff like that. And then you can compare your runs back to back. Um, so I download this app and then I get an email from the Nike Run Club and it says, welcome to the team. And it has a picture of these fine people. And the first thought that came to my mind was, well, I'm not on their team. Like they're way too cool and way too well-dressed and way too young to be on the same team as me. Um, I don't know. Anyways, I thought it was funny. There's something about actually feeling like you belong. Just saying you're on the same team as someone and it doesn't kind of work that way. The Enneagram is a personality system that we are talking about over the course of the summer. And it's a system that describes patterns in how people see the world and how they manage their emotions. And when you kind of figure out that you're on the same number on the dial as someone else on the scale of one to nine, you feel like you're on the same team because you approach the world kind of the same way. This summer, we're using this particular model as a jumping off point as we explore nine stories of fear and desire in the Bible that can help us understand how we move in the world and what God wants to reveal to us along the way. Now, disclaimer that I gave last week that I'm going to give again here is that we're not teaching the Enneagram. That's not what this is about. Um, but that being said, at the end of July, actually Monday, July 27th, we are bringing in Krista Hesselink from Soul Play, and she is going to be teaching us about the Enneagram. So you can go to the Stay Connected page of our website or via the Church Center app in registrations and sign up for that event. Uh, she's going to be talking to us about the core principles that everyone should know about the Enneagram. All right, now before we dive in, uh, I want to talk to our kids for a minute. Last week, uh, I gave you guys a bit of an assignment during the service for those of you who are sticking around. And uh, some of your parents sent in some drawings. So I thought I'd show those off a little this morning and just say thanks for participating. And we're going to do it again this morning. So the assignment that you've got today starts off with this. Grab a piece of paper, uh, whatever you got handy, and draw a big heart on it. So you're going to draw just the outline of a heart as big as you can on that piece of paper. Uh, you're going to leave it empty for now. So if you want to do a little extra fanciness, you can kind of make a fancy border to the heart or something like that, but leave the middle empty for now. So we had a reading this morning from Genesis chapter 16, and I want to give a little bit of context for that story. And to get that context, we're going to go back one chapter to Genesis 15. We'll start at verses 1 and 2. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, I'm sure it was nothing personal against Eliezer of Damascus. The story continues. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. The man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the stars, sky, and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord. So it takes a lot of faith for an 85-year-old man to believe something like that, that his offspring, of which he has zero at the moment, are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. The passage continues, 
with in chapter 16, which is the beginning of the reading we had today. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, Abram may have had great faith, but Sarah was the one who carried the shame of not being able to conceive, a cultural burden that weighed heavily on women of that time. Jewish and Muslim teachings suggest that Hagar was actually the daughter of Pharaoh, and she reportedly said, it is better to be a slave in Sarah's house than a princess in my own. Now, historians believe that it was more likely, she was more likely a slave girl gifted to Abram by Pharaoh, um, but regardless, Abram and Sarah failed to see Hagar as a whole person. They never called her by her name. She's just an object to be used as a surrogate for the child Sarah is unable to conceive. The next verse is a little perplexing. Genesis 16:2, Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Now, sometimes husbands just get it wrong. I found this image uh, you can read it. Last night, I asked my husband to put some spaghetti on the stove so I could start dinner when I got home. I came home to this. So Abram is asked by his wife to do something, and he does it. And technically, like the guy who put spaghetti on the stove, he did what he was asked. But the real question is, should he have? Now, in truth, it was a custom consistent with the moral standards of the day. It's not like this request of Sarah was coming out of nowhere. It's not like this wouldn't have been on Abram's mind. But the real question is, should he have followed through with it after everything that came after? Starting in verse 3, So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah his wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Now there is little doubt that Hagar was the victim in this situation. But her pregnancy tipped the power dynamic and she began to take advantage of her new social status. Picking it up in verse four. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And the cycle of animosity and mistreatment continues. Now, twos in the Enneagram have a desire to feel loved and a basic fear of feeling unloved. Hence this story, where both Sarah and Hagar feel unloved, though for different reasons. But then again, don't all of us want to feel loved? I mean, is there anyone who doesn't who would say, well, I don't care if I'm loved? Now, remember, when we're talking about the Enneagram, it's common to find a little of yourself in all nine types, although one of them should stand out as being closest to yourself. Henry Nouwen writes, only when you know in your deepest being that you are intimately loved can you face the dark voices of the enemy without being seduced by them. Now, another way of saying this would be that if you don't know, in your deepest being, that you are intimately loved, you will be vulnerable to the dark voices of the enemy. What kind of voices is now in talking about here? Well, when I read the story, I think for Hagar, the voice could be something like, you are an object, a piece of property. You are of little value. You're nothing more than a baby carrier. To say nothing of the racial and class prejudice that would have 
uh, affected her as an outsider in the tribe. For Sarah, I think some of the voices that she might have heard would be, you are old, you're broken, you're shameful, maybe you're even cursed by God. What about us? What kind of voices do we hear? Well, you're nothing special. You're expendable. You're unattractive, underqualified. No one would miss you if you left. You're not smart enough. You're too old. You're too young. You're too whatever. You're not whatever enough. When you hear those voices, and we all will at some point or another, you need to confront them, reject them, and replace those foul words with some other words. So this is what we're going to do with our heart. Inside the heart, I want you to write your name right in the middle. And then around your name, I want you to write either words or draw pictures of either things that you're good at or things that you like about yourself. And if you have a hard time thinking about things that you're good at or things you like about, maybe parents or siblings or friends who are with you can give you some suggestions to help fill in that heart with all of these good things about yourself. Henry Nouwen continues, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. I want to read the tail end of that again. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Now, a two is sometimes called the helper. They are known for being caring, generous, and people-pleasing. Twos distribute plenty of love, but often live with concerns about abandonment, which brings us right back to the pregnant Hagar, rejected by her mistress, running away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from, and where are you going? Now, I read this story a number of times this week in preparation, and then finally, those questions just hit me hard. And I realized how profound the angel of the Lord's questions were to Hagar, but are to all of us. Where have you come from? Where are you going? If we would take some time to really try to answer those questions, I feel like we would have a really good sense of who we are and how to live a healthy life. Where have you come from? What is the story of your life? What is the path you followed? Who have been the people who have influenced you for positive or negative uh, along the way of your journey? Where have you come from that has led you to this place now? Where are you going? Where do you see yourself? What is the vision that you have for your life for where you're moving forward? Another way of thinking about these questions might be to say, what are you running away from? What are you chasing after? Now, there's a lot of heartbreak in this story, but there's also a lot of good news, including that when we feel unloved and want to just run away from it all, God actively pursues us. God pursues us because God loves us. And that love is not diminished in the slightest by any of the, the things those dark voices would try to have us believe. God just loves us. As the Brazilian author Paulo Coelho writes, one is loved because one is loved. 
No reason is needed for loving. When God calls out to Hagar in the wilderness, he calls to her by name. That's something that neither Abram nor Sarah did. They called her slave or the slave girl. Now, God does refer to her as the slave of Sarah. He doesn't ignore the identity that she had been strapped to. She doesn't, he doesn't ignore the circumstances that she found herself in, but he names her first. In verse eight and nine, she answers, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, hold on a second. God meets her in her brokenness after she has been a slave, has been required to sleep with her master to bear his child, has been abused to the point of her being willing to just flee pregnant into the middle of the wilderness. And when God meets her there, he says, go back. On the surface, this command seems insensitive or even oppressive. But the verses that follow reveal God's compassionate concern for Hagar's future. These days, it's obviously sweltering hot outside. And uh, I have, over the last few, few months, have been trying to work outside uh, on our deck as much as I can. That's really only possible in the mornings now. And in the last couple of weeks, in the mornings, while I'm out there on the deck, I've had a little friend, a little visitor who's been joining me, a little chipmunk. Um, he uh, or she, I'm not really sure and don't really care to know, um, has been kind of just peeking its little head up over the edge of our step. And I thought, I'm going to go grab some planters peanuts and I'm just going to put a couple on the deck. Uh, so I've been doing this for the last few days. And uh, as this picture shows, the little chipmunk is getting a little closer, a little more courageous as the days go by. I told Melissa that my goal, my personal goal, is that by the end of the summer, this chipmunk is eating out of my hand. Now, I realize that I'm not really giving the chipmunk very much. A chipmunk is basically designed to find nuts and berries and seeds on its own. It doesn't need a human to give it food. So I'm really not giving it anything else that it couldn't find on its own. Now, that's not the case uh, in this interaction between God and Hagar. God gives something so significant to Hagar. There's something that she could never have done or accomplished on her own. The angel added after saying, go back, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's almost the same promise that God gave to Abram. But this time the promise is given to Hagar, not a man, not a husband, not a patriarch, but an Egyptian slave woman. Hagar also receives a covenant blessing. In response, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. In the face of a life where she must have felt almost completely unseen, Hagar testifies to her close encounter with God by naming God Elroi. He sees me. We all, in our own ways, long to be seen, to be heard, to be known, to be loved. God saw Hagar then, and God sees you now. Jesus tells this beautiful uh, story. It's actually a set of three stories found in Luke chapter 15. The first story is about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One of them goes missing and, and the shepherd goes chasing after this lost sheep until he finds it and brings it home on his shoulders. 
and he tells a story about a woman who had 10 coins and she lost one of them. So she, she swept up and looked in every nook and cranny of her house until she found that one missing coin and then she celebrated. And then he tells a third story about a father who had two sons and one of those sons goes astray and blows his inheritance on a wild living. And then he decides when he's at the, near the bottom of the pit, the depths of the despair to come crawling back to his father. And in Luke 15 verse 20, Jesus, as he's telling the story, says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. It's like Jesus was saying, your father in heaven is standing at the doorway looking for you. Now, when Hagar returns, both she and Sarah appear to settle in to their new reality. It would be a full 13 years before Sarah conceived and gave birth to her own son, Isaac. And then the whole story would repeat itself, resulting in yet another expulsion. Apparently, um, Ishmael, the child born to Hagar, was bullying little Isaac, the young one that was, has recently been born to Sarah. And so Sarah approaches uh, Abram and basically says, I can't handle this. You know, we're going down this road again. You've got to get rid of this woman. So early the next morning, Abram took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. She, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God led Hagar and her son to a well where they were refreshed. And the next verse is a beautiful and yet often overlooked one. It says that God was with the boy as he grew up. See, the rest of the biblical narrative follows the story of Abraham and Sarah and their children and on through the generations. And we don't really hear a whole lot about what happens to that other side of the family tree. But God was with the boy as well because he had promised to Hagar that he would build him into a, two, a huge nation as well. Listen, people may fail us. They may let us down. They may reject us. They may drive us away. They may leave us with nothing. But God will hear our crying. God will see us hiding out in the wilderness, whatever that means in our situation. And he will never stop loving us. In the words of Rachel Held Evans, the great struggle of the Christian life is to take God's name for us, to believe we are beloved, and to believe that is enough. So kids or older kids who have done this little heart exercise with me this morning, I want you to hang this picture somewhere that will remind you over the course of the next week of what God sees when he looks at you, that his heart is for you and that he loves you. We're gonna close with a song. Uh, I just wanna read the lyrics to the first verse and then uh, I'm gonna dismiss and, and pray and then our service will end. We'll sing this new song together. It's called Never See the End. I've been listening to this one a lot lately. The lyrics go, where can we run? Where can we hide? 
that you will not find us, God. Deepest of depths, highest of heights, your love, it chases us. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, we can't escape your love. On the other side of the song, I'll invite you to join in a neighbor's group to discuss this morning's theme and check in with one another. If you haven't done this before and you'd like to try it out, there'll be a link in the comments right now for you to join. Let us pray. Lord, I'm grateful for this story. The truth is, is it's a story of brokenness and rejection. It's a, joke, a story of pain, but it's a story that speaks to so many of us when we have similar experiences, maybe not as extreme as the things that Hagar went through, but God, there are so many times where we feel unloved or at the very least, we fear that we are unloved and we try to run away. God, I pray that you would reach out to every single person who's watching, who's listening, and you would let every one of us know that we are loved by you, that we are beloved. And God, I ask that you would help us to follow your lead and believe that you have promises in store for us as well. God, remind us of your love as we go out through the rest of the week. In Christ's name, amen.